and then Passover two weeks away falls on a Saturday evening or Sabbath evening, so we'll have two Sabbaths in a row. Uh, the regular Sabbath, and then, of course, the first day of unleavened bread, which is itself a memorial, a feast day, and a Sabbath. I might ask uh, some prayers for George Hubble. He uh, he did a stint in the hospital for a, some stents, spelled differently. Uh, this week uh, had some pretty good blockages and uh, they were able to put those in. I'm not sure whether he'll be back here in time for services or not. He was picked up and is on his way, but uh, whether he'll be too tired to show up or not remains to be seen. But he's doing well and uh, uh, I'm thankful that he's around. (coughs) So uh, keep him in mind anyway, though I think that the crisis with his health is for the moment at least, pretty much over. Well, here we are, again, two weeks from Passover, and uh, I laid on you again last week, Joel 2, and some other scriptures about how we are to be weeping and mourning and putting everything else aside that might be in our life that we possibly can uh, in order to draw as close to God as we specifically can, because it does truly appear that the events of the end time are going to begin in earnest uh, from Passover and on. Indeed, last night the war drums began to beat louder when the U.S. and its NATO partners did some bombing in Syria and the Russians are threatening counterattacks, so this thing is building toward a crescendo toward the end of this year or the beginning of next year where I think the Bible timing shows us that this nation will be completely destroyed. Uh, One-third will go into famine and pestilence. One-third will be killed by the sword. And one-third taken captive. And the sword go after them. So when that famine and pestilence starts as a precursor to the absolute destruction of the nation uh, remains to be seen. But it does appear from Zephaniah 1 and other places that there will be an economic crash prior to the destruction of the nation. And when you have an economic crash uh, that will reverberate throughout, uh, there will be no food. Uh, and without food comes famine, and with, with famine comes disease and pestilence. So it may be the famine and disease that, that uh, comes ahead of the war will begin, what, late this fall? Very possible. It could even be early fall, I don't know. God does not define it that closely, but He does give us the year. And I think we are now in that year. So this is a time to be vigilant, a time to be prepared, and if Joel 2 uh, and the first month mentioned there is this year, uh, things are going to change quite dramatically in this month that we begin uh, tomorrow night, uh, especially probably around Passover time. So uh, let us be aware and let us be alert and today I wish to approach uh, some, a body of Scripture that, in a sense, uh, considering where it's coming from, we are in a state of captivity. Isaiah 52 tells us very clearly that we are to quit being walked upon, uh, quit laying down in the street and letting them stomp all over us, but that we are to rise and shake the dust off and break the bonds from around our neck. Now, that could be here locally. It could be the overall Babylonian system that still affects us. But nevertheless, and I think it applies in both cases, but we are imprisoned in Satan's society, are we not? And even though we might move to the wilderness, 
is still all around us in one form or another, and we even bring it into our homes with uh, internet and television and radio and, and in whatever ways. So it is a constant around us, and Satan is the prince of the power of the air and does broadcast into the airwaves and can affect your mind. Now, I noticed this is back, oh, back in the 70s, would have been about 73 maybe. Um, some other members of the church and I, in any case, uh, went up to Canada for the Feast of Tabernacles in Penticton because we had in mind a moose hunt following uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And we had allotted, I think, two or three weeks to go up and be in the North Woods out of Prince George, British Columbia, and hunt moose. The point I want to make is that in spending nearly all my time, waking hours at least, in the woods during that period of time, I was absolutely amazed at how many things that cluttered my mind went away. The world, the influences of the world, many of the thoughts that were planted there by the media, by people, by whatever in the world around us, went away. My mind got better, it got cleaned up, it got... Uh, more attuned to God by being out in the creation and around, I mean, just the trees and the animals and the peace that was there. So getting away from the source of the problems helped immensely. And that was just a, a microcosm of what it will be like when Christ is ruling the earth, Satan is bound, and we will not have the influences of society gone wrong around us or Satan himself broadcasting in the air. And people are going to have a whole lot easier time of it than we do. And of course, the world essentially will be saved or converted during that period of time. Same in the great white throne judgment. So we need to get as far from the influences of Satan and the world as we reasonably can in this day and age. And that's why God has brought us out away from it uh, so that we are not quite as much in the middle of it as we were when we were in some of the big cities and so on of this nation. But we're going to go to the book of Philippians today and we find the setting here is that Paul had appealed to Rome uh, as according to Romans 13 we have the right to do uh, this was not going to end very well for Paul in one sense, but he had been persecuted. And remember that in his lifetime, Paul had been stoned, he had been snake bit, he had been shipwrecked, he had been lashed with lashes. In fact, right there in Philippi he had been. And he had had some pretty severe happenings in his life. When he was stoned, he was even left for dead. They thought they had accomplished their purpose. And yet he got up from the stoning and went on about his business. Might have had a few days with a, a headache. <laughs> I don't know exactly what the situation was, whether God just healed him from the effects of that, but I suspect he was probably bruised and sore all over from being hit with a multitude of stones. So he had some pretty rough times in his life. And we sometimes forget that. Uh, but here, having appealed to Rome, he had traveled to Rome, had adversity on his way getting there, and yet arrived. And then he was put in prison. So understand that when he writes this book, he is writing it from a very severe situation that he himself physically was in. And it tempers a great deal the things that he had to say and gives direction to what is written here. So here we are in bonds of Satan's world. We're in the bonds of difficulties even with some of our neighbors at the moment. And let's put ourselves in that sense into his situation because we have a lot in common in some respects 
to where he was physically imprisoned at that point. So, let his attitudes, let his feelings, let his words sink into our present condition and help us understand why he felt what he felt and why he expressed it the way he expressed it. Context is a huge factor in understanding any part of the Bible. And if you know what was going on in someone's life when they wrote it, then it helps you better understand why they put things the way they did. So he he in prison, or was in prison, but Timothy wasn't. But he opened this book to the Philippians, or just a letter is what it was. And then God made it part of the Bible, because it's an important letter. He says, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Emmanuel which are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. So, it's, it's not quite clear here whether Timothy was there visiting him in jail or whether he was at that point in Philippi. I think he makes a little statement that might clarify that further on down. Uh, it's neither here nor there, but the point is that Paul realized he might not get out of prison. He knew it was very possible he would die there. So, he is, in a sense passing the mantle on to Timothy in case that turned out to be the way it was. Because he knew he was in dire straits, having thrown himself on the mercy of Rome. Mercy, I mean, Rome was not a really merciful place, if you read history. And yet that's where he felt he needed to go. So he's saying, uh, I'm acknowledging Timothy here in this, and he did it for this purpose. He says, grace be to you, goodwill, pardon, uh, are some of the definitions of grace, and peace. Now, he was in anything but peace uh, in his situation there. Uh, He was in great turmoil, not knowing whether he would be exonerated, uh, forgiven, and, and freed, or whether he would be put to death. Now, if you're on death row today... Uh, it likely means that eventually you're going to die. I mean, that decision has been handed down, and you know that that is the ultimate thing. You may get appeals for 15 years in our perverted system, but uh, nonetheless, you know the verdict. Well, he was not sure of that at this time. And, you know, not being sure uh, can cause an awful lot of frustration and angst and panic and and, uh, all kinds of nervous situations, because once you know the answer, you escape from that limbo of not knowing. Not knowing is a terrible place to be. Someone just told me a few minutes ago that uh, in regards to, one of of George's daughters actually, in regards to his situation, she says, "I, I couldn't get hold of Dad. She says, I want you to pass this along. She says, my patience has been tested. It came out negative. Apparently, saying, I didn't have any. She, she was ready for him to send her good news. But it's that not knowing that is so difficult sometimes for us to handle in any situation what it might be. Once you get a verdict one way or the other, then you begin to adjust to that, and at least the confusion is gone. So, he gave them words of peace from God our Father and from Christ Emmanuel. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So as he sat in prison, he remembered the various congregations and the people that he knew and thought of them, brought them into remembrance. He says, Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day till now. So he says, well, I've been here, I've been thinking, been pondering uh, of you and your situations, and uh, that, is, that is empowering there. It shows an attitude that even though he was in great personal distress, his thoughts were of others. Uh, he, he had them in mind, so it wasn't all inward and selfish, uh, oh, woe is me, poor poor pitiful me, poor po, widow boy. Uh, here I am, uh, 
send me your pity. Come see me. You don't hear that from Paul. You hear, I'm thinking about you and praying for you. Uh, What an attitude under those circumstances. Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Emmanuel's return. That is a very, very powerful verse that really ought to be committed to memory because it's easy to forget how much God loves us, how much He cares for us, and what He sacrificed with His Son that He might bring us to salvation. You know, we've been in a position in the church, we've said many times, where He has turned His face from us, and we want Him to turn His face to us and smile and bless us and save us from our predicament. And it's been a long, hard road dealing with the Father not showing the kind of affection and love that we want and need. And maybe it's hard for us to picture God that way, but He gave us the human family that a father might hold, console, love his children, uh, take care of them, look to their needs. Father and mother are put there to show that child love, affection, caring, so that they grow up knowing that there's a support group to give them confidence and know, because everybody wants to be liked, loved, wanted, needed. They like to be secure in that. And my prayer is not only that he will turn his face and shine his face upon us, but He'll also take us in His arms and hug us. That He will give us that kind of close relationship that makes us feel cared for, wanted, needed, that should be between us and God. And that's one of the things that Christ had with John the Apostle. They were quite comfortable leaning on each other as they sat under a tree or against a rock or somewhere having dinner, Uh, they were close that way. And for God to reach out His hand, reach out His arms, and take us into His embrace is the attitude and the feeling that we need to come to have so that there is that closeness. Now, we see many scriptures which indicate that there is a breach, Isaiah 58 comes to mind, between us and God that has been there. And that's why we were spewed out, and there is a gulf, there is a, an emptiness, a lack of closeness, if you will. We're somewhat estranged from God overall right now. So it's hard to get answers from Him. But He says, when we do turn to Him, then our prayers will be answered. He will be happy to answer them. He will be quick to answer them. Whereas now, we've been getting some answers, sometimes sometimes not as dramatic as we would want, sometimes not as complete as we would want, and we feel lacking. Now that lacking that we feel in the, in the relationship is on purpose. Our conduct has created a situation of chastisement and punishment. And when a parent and a child, according to Hebrews 12, are in a chastening situation, Paul says no chastening for the moment is pleasant. (laughs) It's hard. It hurts. But then, if you are straightened out by that punishment, then the feeling of warmth and closeness returns once the attitude is right. And that's all God is trying to do, is help us get our attitude right, and then we'll be lovable again. And I experience that many times with my own children. They, we would be at odds. There would be a, a gulf, a breach, between us and happiness, because of something they had done. Maybe something I had done at times, but they were the one that got it anyway. But it was generally something they had disobeyed about and weren't, weren't accomplishing or, or achieving in their lives. So I would get angry. 
frustrated and I would punish them. And as soon as I heard a change in attitude, I would stop. If I heard rebellion and disobedience in their cry, I kept right on until there was repentance. Until they said, Oh, Dad, I'm sorry. I won't be that way anymore. My attitude is different. You could hear it in the tone of the cry. Then I would stop. And I would take them in my arms and hold them close and comfort them and tell them, tell them I loved them. I try to do that almost invariably after a spanking or whatever uh, punishment was put upon them. Because I wanted them to know that the estrangement that was felt before the chastening was now gone. And now there was love and peace and comfort and security in the arms of their father once they change their attitude. And that's what God is doing with you and me right now. And we're almost at the end of this period of chastening and punishing. Almost right at the end of it. And he's waiting to hear our cry of repentance. He's waiting to hear the fear of God in our voice. He's waiting to hear, I'm not going to sin anymore. <laughs> I'm done. I put away this. I'll put away that. I'll get rid of this. Perish that thought. And once he hears that tone, then he says, you'll pray and I will answer you. I will give you those things that I have promised you. So we're right up to that. And I keep harping on this because I'm scared. I want to be included when God changes his mind, changes the position of his face, and instead of holding his arms back or bringing them forward in punishment, he brings them forward with hugs. want to be there. And I fear, because of me, that unless I receive a lot of mercy and grace and forgiveness, I won't be there. But if this be the year, and I think it is, He's depending on you and me. He's begun a work in us, as we just read here in Philippians. And He is going to fulfill it. Now, most of the church and the Jews and whoever else that keep Passover kept it too early, by a month, in my view. And in your view. Have you heard, any of you, anything that changed? Has God opened His arms and blessed anyone anywhere in that Passover they kept about two weeks ago? I see no hands. I don't think anything happened. Anything that would be of note, that would be noteworthy. Now, we already know this is the area that it has to happen in, right? I think we proved that pretty well. This is the original promised land. This is where those blessings return, and he says, I'll bring you back to the place you started from. And that was the original promised land. So this is where the real Zion is, and this is where God's going to gather his people. Have any of you heard of another group that is here other than us? Sabbath, holy day, keepers of God's truth. I haven't. There aren't any. You know what that means? That means the pressure's on us. We are in the pressure cooker because God fully intends to use us as the starting point for what He is going to do. I've hedged on that in the past a little bit and said, well, he'll pick one of the daughters. But we're the only one he's sent out here so far. And we're the only ones that he's given the knowledge and understanding to. So what that means is, yes, he intends to use us to start this thing. It's not a maybe anymore. We're two weeks from Passover. And this has to be the year. I can see no way around it. I'm out on that limb. If it breaks off and I'm wrong, then uh, I don't know where we go from there yet. And I could be. But all the signs point to this being it. 
And if it is it, that means we're on the spot. You know, when Christ was crucified, he had all his disciples around him. But they weren't going to die that night. He was. Now, when he went off to pray, he asked them to pray with him for an hour. He said, I'm, I'm going to depart. I'm going to go away a little way, so I'm just me and the Father. But he says, I want you to watch with me to be awake, to be alert, to be praying, because I'm facing, at age 33 and a half, a horrible, painful martyrdom. So be with me. <laughs> so he went off to pray, and when he came back, they were all asleep, of course. Now, he couldn't sleep. His life was on the line. He was the one that was going to die the next day. They weren't. So they didn't feel as much pressure as he felt, okay? And then, when he was taken, and the disciples kind of trailed along to watch what was going to happen, they still weren't under great pressure. But you know what? As soon as a little bit of pressure was put upon them, they ran, they lied, they denied. It didn't take much pressure to make them run in fear. Now, he was under incredible pressure and stood up to it. They didn't have the Spirit of God yet. They were not yet converted. But had they had the kind of pressure he had, uh, well, they already showed what they do with a little bit. What would they have done with a lot? They would have run screaming away. So a little pressure was applied. Now, pressure was put on them at Pentecost in Acts 2 as well. You guys are drunk. You guys are idiots. A lot of emotional pressure was thrown at them. A lot of harsh words were thrown at them when God began to do something pretty important there. But at that point, they received the Spirit of God and had the strength and the courage to stand up against the pressure of the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, uh, maybe even non-religious people that thought they were nutso. And they stood up to that pressure. Now here you have Paul, under the pressure of possible death, sitting in jail, writing a letter, saying that God has begun a good work in you, and it will be finished. So God has commissioned us to come here for a work, not because we're anything. He uses the weak and the base to confound the wise. And he uses the weak and the base to show that he can take something that is nothing and make something. That's what the potter and the vessel and so on back in, what is it, Isaiah 64, somewhere right in there. He can make a vessel to dishonor, just to carry water or, or slop in or whatever. And he can make a vessel to honor, to carry frankincense and myrrh or precious things. So he could just take clay and make of it what he wishes. And that's all we were, a lump of clay. Now he's been, he called us to a high purpose to make of us vessels that would carry precious treasures. And he told us to be clean so that we might carry those treasures. So he's putting pressure on us to be a good pot <laughs> as opposed to a low-quality pot that's used for just mundane things. He's put us here for a very spiritual and important reason. And you know what? He's not going to let us off the hook, brethren. He's not. He is going, he's got pressure on us right now. From the world around us, from our neighbors, from Satan. To see how we are going to respond. Are we going to respond with love and turning to Him? With love and turning to each other in love and supporting each other? Or will we turn to further division and hate and despite and selfishness and not fulfill our purpose? That's where we are. And there's not much time left. 
And that's why in Joel 2, he said, before the first month comes, you need to be crying and weeping and wailing and setting aside any physical goals or purposes. Even, and he uses, again, the analogy of a bride and bridegroom. You got wedding plans. You're going to get married. Set them aside for now. There's only one focus. There's only one important thing. And that's getting prepared for and doing the work that God has set before us. Part of it may be the removal of some enemies. But the biggest part of it is to prepare ourselves and plead for mercy that we might be accounted worthy to do a great work for God. And it will be His greatness and His power that accomplishes, not ours, because we don't have any. Of ourselves, we can do nothing. We can make a feeble attempt to do this, that, or the other thing, but without His backing, nothing will be accomplished. So, given these circumstances, how are we to respond? And that's why I chose to uh, look at how Paul responded today. Because he gives us a great example of where we should be under uh, difficult and pressure-filled circumstances. So he said, have confidence. Don't take the attitude that, oh my, I'm nothing, I'm going to become a washout. I'm not going to make it. No. Wrong attitude. So he's telling them right off the bat here, as soon as he gets the introduction, God has started a work in you, and he is going to fulfill it. Using the old eye through, uh, camel through the eye of a needle analogy again here, a camel can throw, go through the eye of a needle. Now, whether we're talking about a low gate in Jerusalem or not is not the point. It's talking about something large going through a very constricted space. So he says, I can get a camel through the eye of a needle, but then you back off and say, look what it does to the camel. <laughs> to go through the eye of a needle, it, it has to be somewhat rearranged. And that's, that's painful for the camel. So we can either accept that God has chosen us to do a work, or we can say, well, I'm not up to that, and deny it and run from it, or ignore it, or just give up and say, I guess I'm toast, or whatever. But that's not what he says to do. He says, be confident that this will happen. Now, think back. He tells us to go back and consider our forefathers. What about when Moses was called to do a job? Oh, Lord, I stutter. I can't speak well. You, you, you need to get somebody else. I'm not up to it. Moses! Yeah? Well, you're right. You don't speak very well. I'll get Aaron. You say the words. He'll speak them. Well, what a blow that is. <laughs> Moses probably rethunk and said, you know, I really shouldn't have said that, but okay, that's the way it is. And there, another example came to mind now I lost it of somebody who protested when God said to do that. Well, I think Amos did. He says, hey, I'm just a fruit picker. You know, why, why send me? I'm but a, just a herdman of cattle. So we can protest. But God made Amos go ahead and do it. Uh, oh, the other one I thought of was Jeremiah. He says, I'm just a child. I'm not even, a, I'm not an old man. I'm, I'm just a young fella. Use the word child. Uh, I'm not qualified to do this. So you see, as soon as the pressure began to be applied a little bit, those men said, oh, wait a minute. I don't want that kind of pressure. <laughs> now let's use a more modern one. Herbert Armstrong was taught truth, and he tried to deny it, tried to run from it, told, him, told his wife, I'm going to get in that Bible and I'm going to prove you wrong. That's a denial. He's saying, you're wrong, and I am going to prove it. How'd that work out for him? He had to accept it when he saw it, 
and then go ahead and do the job God had given him to do. And I think that by the end of his life, he had actually accomplished what God had intended for him to do. And then a finishing work has to follow that. But his wife was putting pressure on him. Herbert, you need to do this. No, I do not. Herbert, you do. (laughs) That was affecting his marriage, his relationship with his wife. So he decided to do something about it. Now Christ is putting more pressure on you and me, certainly as much pressure right now, as he has really ever put on anyone, unless they were truly facing being sawn asunder as Isaiah was, or some of those examples in Hebrews 11. But the spiritual, emotional, and mental pressure that is on us, if we understand should be so great that we cannot help but cry out. And that's where Christ was on that night. Disciples didn't feel it the same way. But he knew the circumstance. He grasped it. He understood it. And maybe having come to see these things, and God showing them to me, I believe, because I wouldn't have found them on my own, Maybe I grasp it a little better than at this point even you do, even though I've been pounding it in. But I hope we are feeling the pressure that this thing is now finally upon us. And even if it's not, the pressure of being laid of sin and spewed out and needing to close the breach between us and God is upon us. But then you add this other pressure of time being short to get that accomplished, and it's a scary kind of pressure. So I hope we're seeing it, and I hope we're feeling it, and I hope we're reacting properly. And that's really the direction I am today is, where do we go with this pressure? What do we do with it? How do we handle it? Well, Christ went out to pray. And the disciples, though they felt, I suppose, a certain amount of pressure, it wasn't enough to keep them away. But take verse 6. <coughs> That's all you get. Take that verse. And have confidence and faith that God has started something with us here. And if we don't just utterly rebel and turn from Him and instead turn to Him, He fully intends to carry it out and to use us for His purposes. So, accept it. We don't need to deny it. We don't need to say, well, maybe it's somebody else. You know, at some point, Herbert Armstrong decided, yeah, this is my job. I am going to go do it. And he worked at it real hard throughout his life. Abraham, in spite of the trials and the trouble and the pressure of being told he's going to have a son and it not happening for a long, long time. And he and Sarah did their best to make it happen, but hey, it didn't work. She was barren. And it didn't work until God intervened. (coughs) And then she got pregnant. They did their works. They did their best. They tried to make it happen. But no baby. Until God performed a miracle. So, We have miracles ahead of us. The things that God is going to do in the next month are going to be miracles, or months. (coughs) And there are going to be people coming before this war that is in the process of starting actually causes this nation to go away within a year. And when I've understood that now, it changes my whole world view, my whole church view, my whole view of what is important for me to accomplish as opposed to planning for three, four, five, six, seven, eight years down the road uh, on various things that I might want to do. If it's this close, I better get everything straight and right. And that be the focus. Again, we have to eat. We have to pay the bills. There are certain things that we have to do. But how do you translate that in seeking God with all your heart? Do you translate that to, well, I'm kind of bored, let's watch a movie tonight. Do you translate that to, oh, I think I'll read a novel. 
play a video game. How do you translate that when God says, I have this kind of pressure on you that you need to perform now? I can't watch a movie. Sorry, I just can't. Got some in there I could watch. But it seems so inane, so unimportant when we're facing the end of the world, the end of the age, the end of the nation as we know it is right before our very eyes, less than a year away. And I'm not the only one saying that. There are a lot of people across the nation that don't even know God at all who are saying the economic crash is coming this fall. And that the war, World War III, I read an article this morning that says it started. It's in its infancy, but it has begun in the Middle East. And they may very well be right. And it will escalate over time. It has to start at some point in order to escalate enough for the tensions to get so great that the conspiracy against America is actually launched and we are defeated. And I think the people who are working in concert behind the scenes will engineer the economic crash in order to bring this nation and its people to its knees and have it starving and dying of famine and pestilence before they ever invade to totally take over. I saw in Africa one time, I think it was a water buck, uh, out in a muddy pond. And there were several hyenas sitting on the bank. Now, they did not want to attack that water buck when it was strong and had horns. They knew they could get hurt, and maybe had been before. So they were sitting there patiently. That water buck was eventually going to come out of the water where they could get at it, or out of its fear of them, it would stand right there without food until it got so weak that it would fall over, and they could go out there and eat it. They do not intend to attack this nation while it is still strong. They intend to weaken us as much as they possibly can and have our destruction pretty well in hand before they simply can walk in and take over. You don't need nukes when the people are so hungry that they couldn't fight anyway. Why destroy the infrastructure? You don't have to. Just start starving them to death. Let disease begin to run rampant through their population. Let them kill each other for food. And then your task is pretty easy. The people who fear nuclear war don't understand the Bible. They don't grasp it. We're not going to have a nuclear war. Oh, they might have a little suitcase bomb or some small device they use at some point. I don't know. I won't say that entirely. But if they, if they intend to survive, which they do, why would they want clouds of radiation coming their way from destroying us? Now, God has told us He will save us out of this to do His work and show the world that He is God. He's per- he started a good work in us, and He intends to finish it. So we're not to be here feeling weak, feeling vulnerable, feeling like, oh God, you can't use us. Yes, He can. And yes, He will. So let's get with the program. <laughs> you know what I mean? Being confident, having faith. Will he find faith when he returns? Or up to his return? If he's going to find it, brethren, he needs to find it starting right here. That he will do a work in us, that he will accomplish it, and we need to have confidence to move forward into his arms, that he might embrace us and smile upon us and bless us, in order to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. All I'm saying is believe God. 
We've read all these scriptures over and over and over again. And they got to happen sometime, and they got to happen to somebody. And so far, unless he has something completely different in mind, we're the only ones he's called to the right place, and he intends for us to get the job done. Now, if we turn to him with our heart, the chastening will stop, and he and we will work together to accomplish his purposes. Now, if we do not and will not believe it, he may put the pressure to us until we do believe it. Because when God starts a project, he doesn't give up on it very easily. He doesn't give up on it at all. He is eventually going to save this miserable, wretched world. He is eventually going to chain Satan. Those are goals and purposes and prophecies that he has given us. Now, when all these scriptures in the New Testament say, believe, they mean it. He's given us a job, brethren. He wouldn't have called us here if he hadn't given us a job. He gave us a job just as much as he gave Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, Daniel. He gave us a job just as directly as he gave them a job. And every one of them performed it. They had to have some chastening sometimes. They had to have encouragement. They had to have time and space. They had to believe that God would do what he said. And we've read the testimony of all those prophets where God has repeated over and over and over again what he is going to do. Do we believe it yet? You don't have any trouble believing the chastening, do you? When I read those scriptures about being spewed out and how God would chasten us and punish us, you've been experiencing it. You don't have any trouble believing that at this point. So then why do we have trouble believing that the good that will come of it will also happen? Why do we have that pause where we say, well, yeah, I see how that happened. That ought to give us encouragement to really believe that the other is also coming. Now, God's Word does not go from His mouth void. When He casts His bread on the water, it returns to it. Therefore, when He called us to do a job, He expects us to finish it. Now, some have given up and gone away, just as they did in Paul's day. Alexander the coppersmith, he named some names. And there was a falling away, a big falling away from the New Testament church. So, did that prevent the end time, the uh, early New Testament church from finishing its purpose? No. He allowed all the apostles but John to actually be killed, martyred. Did that stop it? No, it ran its course to the last man standing, John the Apostle. He finished the early New Testament church in about a 70-year period as he intended so to do. Herbert Armstrong's work in the first temple was done and then died out after 70 years. It lasted as long as God intended it to. Now a new work must be be begun. And God has brought you here to be part of it. And he says we've got to endure to the end. In other words, you know in your life that God began at some point to call you to understand the truth. We all had a different experience, as young or adult or old even, when he called us. But we can remember that we may be, have been against it as Herbert Armstrong was. We may have fought it. <clears throat> or he may have just simply opened our minds suddenly and we accepted it 
and tried to give it to our neighbors and our friends and relatives who would not accept it. So there was a difference made in our mind. He opened it. He showed us the truth. He called us to be here, to be part of the, old, the uh, end-time Church of God. Now, we have to make that calling and election sure, as Paul puts it. We have to get after it, make sure it happens. And that's what I'm calling on you, and God is calling on you and Joel and a plethora of other scriptures to do, is make sure it happens. Make, it, make your calling and election sure that you soon be not soon shaken, it's put in one place. I think that's in Hebrews. But you press on toward the mark. And you don't shrink back, for God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back. In other words, full speed ahead is where we have to be. That's the mode we need to be in. When you are nervous, worried, frustrated, scared, you don't feel like attacking. You don't feel like to be aggressive. You feel like being in the, uh, oh, I can't think of it, where the child draws up into himself. Uh, I'm scared. Uh, cover me up. Don't bother me. I want to hide from this. Can't be there. Come boldly before the throne of God and ask for help in a time of need. Or, as he put it here, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it. And the word in the original Greek was finish it. He will finish it until the day Christ returns. You may be in the grave by then, or you may be standing waiting for the resurrection when he returns. But he's going to finish the work he started in you. Now, he's told us ahead of time that 90% of the church is going to go into the Great Tribulation. Does that mean he's given up on them? No. It just means that they didn't begin to repent and do what they needed to do. Therefore, he is going to apply even more pressure. Where if they don't work on the Sabbath, if they don't give up the holy days, if they don't give up the truth of God, and give up the name of Christ even, they will be persecuted, tortured, and killed. Now that ratchets the pressure up a great deal. Remember how you were sitting aside a few minutes ago and I was talking about the incredible pressure that was on Christ because he knew he was about to die and how the disciples kind of escaped that degree of pressure. Well, in the tribulation, everyone who is left behind is going to feel that same kind of pressure. That's the kind of pressure it's going to take to get them to truly repent. So see, God, even if he puts them in the tribulation, isn't done with them. He's going to apply enough pressure that it makes them get on their knees. That's all this whole end time thing is about. The reason he is going to put famine and pestilence and sword and captivity on this nation and all Israelite nations, but specifically the leader Ephraim, the firstborn, is to do what? Bring them to repentance. Incredible pressure. Now, if they die under that pressure, they'll come up in the great white throne judgment, and they will remember what they just went through. And they'll say, I think it's prayer time. <laughs> you know? I, I think it's time to give up the, what I believed and see if there's a God around anywhere. So that's all it is. is pressure designed to make them accomplish what God put them here to accomplish. To become God and live in His kingdom in peace, security, and happiness forevermore. That's the reason we were put on this earth. That's His goal and that's His purpose. And that's why He says in Romans eleven twenty six, All Israel shall be saved. 
That is the vast majority of it. He's not saying every individual, because we know that there are some who will just simply totally reject him. But I'll tell you what, he is going to put the pressure on as much as he needs in order to accomplish his purposes. And whenever he calls people, he will finish the work that he called them to do. Now that pressure has not yet been applied to the world. It is within months of being applied. Not years now, but months. In a pressure that they have never, ever, ever known. And you are spiritually under pressure right now, whether you've recognized it and internalized it yet or not, I do not know. But God in those scriptures is applying that purpose and saying, I put you here to do a job. Now get yourself in shape and get yourself ready to do that job. Now you feel powerless, don't you? I do. Who are we? Of myself? I can do nothing. I got an old guy sitting right here in front of me. He's 91 years old now. Barely get to the kitchen, the bathroom, and hobble to church. I mean, he's pretty healthy and gets around. I mean, he can get done what he has to get done. But I don't think he feels like he did when he was 20. I'll bet he doesn't. So you say, how are we going to do this? Well, go back and read the scriptures we've read over and over and over again where he says he's going to give us the wings of an eagle, the legs of a deer, the healing, the strength, the power, even physically, and then spiritual power to do the things that he once done, to be witnesses that he is God to the whole world. That's what he's after. Now... Are we confident that he will accomplish that at us? I look at this aging, sick, decrepit bunch, including yours truly. And I can see us doing nothing. Really. What are we going to do? We barely get around enough to mow the lawn anymore. Or whatever. Unable to accomplish anything. Our enemies rise against us. We have difficulty fighting them. Troubles and trials come. How are we going to handle that? You know, this went on very long. I'd get to the place where somebody would call for anointing and say, Sorry, can't get there. Or I hope you don't die before I crawl that far. Or some such thing. We're down and out. We're on our way to the boneyard up here. That's where we're headed. And soon, some of us. So what's going to happen? The time has come. God has promised that He will do these things before the flesh fails before Him. And there in Isaiah, He also says, Don't let Him forget. Remind him constantly to do the things he's promised to do and that we had better be doing. Don't let him forget it. Be like the woman before the unjust judge, pleading our case, pleading our cause. Understand our frame. Know that I am but flesh. Know that the spirit is somewhat willing, but the flesh is very weak. And many, many other scriptures I could apply here. And therefore, when you feel old and weak and sick, it is easy to shrink back spiritually and say, all things considered, I'm not much good. I can't do this. But we're forgetting that God said, I'm going to give you what it takes to do it if you will put your hand to the plow and make it happen. And you already told Him before you were baptized, if you're properly counseled, I have put my hand to the plow, I will not turn back. So what good does it do to stand there and lean on the plow? 
it accomplishes nothing. You've got to make it go forward in order to plant a garden. We've got to make it go forward in order to plant the seed of light and life and an example to the world. He's already told us, <clears throat> if you'll just turn to me, I'll give you everything you need to get the job done. Abraham believed that and moved forward. Moses believed that and moved forward. Elijah says, well, I guess the crows are going to quit feeding me. I better get up and move forward. And on and on it goes with example after example. How did Daniel feel with the lions roaring and smacking their chops below him? How did he feel? Was there any pressure there? <laughs> Somebody takes you to the zoo, takes you to the tiger pen, and dangles you over and says, <clears throat> on the count of three, you're a tiger, man. Better get along with him. At that point, you're scared. You have a lot of pressure on you, knowing you're about to be clawed and chewed into little pieces, swallowed and digested, and remain there until the zoo beaver cleans the manure out of the bottom of the cage. That's where you're headed. That's where Daniel was at the lion's den. That's a lot of pressure. I'm sure he prayed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <clears throat> Build a big fire. Make it seven times as hot as it normally is. This was a big furnace with a huge fire because it was big enough to put a lot of people in and hold a lot of ashes. Any enemies the king went there. And he probably had lots and probably a lot of people had been burned there because that's what happened when you got thrown in there. But this time they poured the fuel to it, and even those who went up to throw Daniel, I mean Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, were actually incinerated, burned, and died because the flames were so hot they couldn't get close enough to throw them in without dying themselves. They were under pressure. You have never felt that kind of pressure yet, at all. God is being really quite merciful with us when he says the end of this nation is upon us. It is now less than a year away, and I believe that. And now is the time, a space in between now and then, that the gathering has to come, and you have to be there to take, help take care of those people and to be a part of the end-time work and show the whole world that I am God, and that world is going to hate you, and they will persecute you, and they will do their utmost best to kill you, but I will be a wall of fire around you, and I will not let it happen. Are we ready for that? The pressure is going to be ratcheted up. But all he's put on us right now is this stuff's coming. It is now coming soon, and I think we know when it is. And it isn't very far away. If it starts with Passover, that's only 14 days from tonight. 13 days from tonight, really. Are we ready for that? Are we confident that He who called us here and gave us a purpose and let us understand these Scriptures is going to finish it in us? It's time to believe that. Not time to vacillate anymore and say, well, maybe we're not the ones. Hey, we're the only ones here. We're the ones he's counting on. I don't think he's going to bring a whole new movement in in two weeks. It's you and me, brethren. I meant to go through the whole book of Philippians today, but I got nearly through six verses so far. How much time you got left today? I think this is far enough. There's a message here. We may still be in jail with our health. We may still be in jail with our age. We may still be in jail with our neighbors. 
And we may soon have the world trying to put us in a literal jail. Or kill us. That's just down the road. Do we believe that we were put here for a purpose? And are we ready to say, yes, Lord, I'm unqualified. I'm too old. I'm too weak. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not this and I'm not that. But I'm not going to tell you, no, I can't do this. Why don't you get somebody else? No, we're not going to do that. We're going to say, I am all those things just listed above. I need your help, your strength, your power, your gifts. That I can do this. What did Isaiah say? I'm too young? No. Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. There's the attitude we need. I can't do it on my own. You send me. You give me whatever I need to get the job done. Now that's what he's told us to do. Don't shrink back and go into perdition. But to move forward to the blessings and the honor and the glory that God is intending to give us and to the work that he's called us to do. Don't shy away. At some point along here, we just have to simply accept the fact that we're the ones that God called to do this. Okay? That's not vanity. That's not ego. That's not pride. That's just what God has done. I don't think we can deny it. And if he has done it, then we'd better get busy doing our part and get ready because it's upon us. And he didn't give us this knowledge of when this was going to happen five years ago. He gave it to us months ago. Not so we'd get slack and lackadaisical and say, oh well, yeah, it's still five years away, let's eat, drink, and be merry. He gave it to us just recently so it would scare us and get us on our knees and out of our TV or wherever our head is. Even out of the marriage closet, if you will. And move forward to the glory of God.